electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer America. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to help you make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but put collapses like today in some sort of context you can understand. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. All right, let me add something that's kind of embarrassing at this moment. We like to kick these around the office every morning. Today, we're absolutely giddy about this market, speculating about how the Dow could give us a 14-day winning streak for the first time since the McKinley administration. And so many companies that reported great numbers last night that would see their stocks were. Then, of course, the afternoon comes along, interest rates spike viciously, and the whole market rolls over. With the Dow finishing down 237 points, no record there. The S&P tumbling 0.64%, NASDAQ losing 0.55%. The giddiness quickly subsided. Sell, sell, sell. It got real ugly at the end of the day with some awful reversals. Now, it sure looks like our ebullience called the top this morning. Clearly way too much cockiness, always undisciplined and bad for business. Cockiness breeds arrogance, and arrogance breeds losses. But I don't want that to be your takeaway. Even though the average is down, I don't want it to be that. I, I want it to be something else. I don't want you to lose faith in this incredible bull market. Even when the market's on fire, stocks can still go down. That's just what happens. We can only get bad days, especially when they start as really good days. and People are just too exuberant, and we had that happen today. However, I don't think this sell-off is the end of the world. To me, it feels a little bit more like a garden-variety pullback rather than the kind of horrific declines we've grown accustomed to over the last couple of decades when the market looks really good. When you remember that a recession is no longer on the horizon, and that's what we have to believe, and many companies are doing incredibly well, buying stocks into weakness actually is rational. It makes perfect sense. Maybe that's the first day, like today. But the market fell so hard from the top today, I've got to tell you, I saw a bunch of things I wanted to buy at the end. See, there's something very different about this market, and that's the point I'm trying to make tonight. It's something that was with us for most of the time I spent at Goldman Sachs and my old hedge fund in the 1980s and 1990s. When I practically lived right down here, I could actually see the building I worked at. You know what we used to have? It was something called fun. Yeah, it was fun. I came down to Goldman in 1982, just when stocks started their historic multi-decade run. We didn't have CMEC back then, so we just kind of tried to figure out which stocks were most likely to outperform and talked about them all day. I rotated through various departments at Goldman, and we'd banter about hot stocks, which ones were going to hit a 52-week high, which ones would split. Yeah, split. Do you know something? We used to focus on that all the time. Which ones might get taken over during a period where there was no antitrust? <laughs> there was nothing. This kind of sanguine chatter permeated the stock market for years and years. Even when the averages crashed on Black Monday in October 1987, falling more than 500 points in one day, which was a lot back then, stocks came right back. Sure, some smaller money managers got wiped out, but it was just a hiccup. The market quickly became fun again. 
Because unlike what most thought, the 87 crash did not herald a recession, just more happy times. This positive attitude infused CNBC when it started in 1989. That made sense in the context of a fantastic bull market. Of course, there were always things that could knock the market down. Some iron phrase out of Washington, an insider trading scandal, a company that made up its numbers, the collapse of a takeover. But these were just speed bumps on the way to higher ground because our companies kept getting better and better and growing ever faster with a super robust service economy supplanting our industrial sector as an emphasis for our nation. It was a time when the stock market was enjoyable. When U.S. companies ruled the world, you could make a fortune simply buying shares of the best ones and putting them away. Sure, we still care about interest rates like we did today. The 20-year always seemed like around 7%. We sweated the Fed then. We sweat it now. We occasionally checked the overseas markets, but we were really the only game in town. We simply sat back and tried to figure out what was going to be the next winner, the next Pfizer, the next Merck, the next Intel, the next Microsoft. Hey, Intel, good numbers tonight. That's just the way it was until the late 1990s, when so many companies were doing well that picking winners, frankly, was like shooting fish in a barrel. And then the dot-com bubble inflated in 1999 and burst in 2000, wiping out a generation of investors who stuck with their favorite tech names on the way down and only decided it was just too dangerous to own stocks. It really hurt the asset class. The fun disappeared. A couple years passed, and the market built up another head of steam. You know, investing got a little intriguing again. Otherwise, they'd never been giving me my own show in 2005 talking about stocks. Then the Great Recession came, and another major chunk of the population got burned out on stocks. The fund seemed permanently to disappear, replaced by negativity and endless fear and a notion that stocks were just a ridiculous thing to own. After that, for most of the decade, from 2010 to 2020, we got some rallies, but they were ephemeral, joyless affairs, usually punctuated by analysts and strategists and hedge fund managers who constantly come on air to tell you that stocks were overvalued, even as they did creep up. These guys always tried to make you feel like an idiot for owning individual stocks. They always pushed index funds instead and even questioned whether you should be in those. The conventional wisdom said everything else was just too risky. I think that's a lasting legacy of the dot-com implosion and the financial crisis. Stocks got some temporary lift again in 2020, but that's because the government started mailing people cash to help us cope with the pandemic, and new investors flooded the market. Then the party stopped again when the Federal Reserve took away the punch bowl at the end of 2021. Things only started feeling more heartening again in the last few months, as Wall Street recognized that we've been in a bull market since last fall. Of course, the fighting games ended today when interest rates spiked. I get that. That's not changed. Interest rates are always going to play half of the stocks. We didn't break the Dow record. A lot of stocks that were flying in the morning got schmized later in the day. But I think it is time to recognize that something has changed for this market. And I think it's a change for the better. For the first time since the 1980s and the, let's say, early to mid-1990s, we have a lot of legitimate stocks blowing to many companies with amazing balance sheets and terrific prospects that are flat out doing very well. Sure, the Magnificent Seven are so big relative to everything else that it's, it's, it is tempting to only watch them. But there are tons of other excellent stocks blowing to companies with amazing stories that, to tell, including a couple I've got on tonight. We haven't had such a large percentage of high-quality stocks doing this well since the late 1980s and early 1990s. We were never punished for being giddy back then. People are just making a lot of money. That was an amazing recession-free period. We got something like that going on now with strong numbers coming out every day, even as the Fed tries to rein things in. So what does it mean that we can start taking polls about hot stocks or running pools about the Dow's winning streak? 
No, not that much. I just think it means that we may be back in business as usual mode, not back to pre-COVID, not pre-financial crisis, but back to the 80s and 90s when stocks were really indeed so clearly the best asset class and everything else just seemed like a waste of time. Either you got a decent return for cash. Of course, after the hard sell this afternoon, you could argue we just called the top with our giddiness. You could say the bond market crashed the party because the economy is too strong. I don't know. But maybe, just maybe, maybe there are enough companies with good sales and orders and gross margins that we can return to a period where owning stocks didn't make it feel like a pariah or a daredevil. Maybe it's because like the old days when we had the same kind of market where normal people used it regularly to save, make money, to retire with, to camel. Time will tell. And I know you can never say this time is different until you got definitive proof. But this move, this latest move, these last few months uh, since October, it doesn't feel like a rally to me. Rally implies something ephemeral. It feels more like a reasonable attempt to value stocks of great companies that are doing well in a world. We've got lots of really good enterprises with amazing managements that are truly triumphing with real sales and earnings and not pumped up short term numbers. Look, here's the bottom line. Stocks can still be dropped by a spike in rates like today. And there can be some big cap stocks that disappoint. But the joy and I use that word carefully, but the joy we felt about stocks for so long, we had it for two decades before the century mark. Maybe just maybe. We can have it again. Let's speak to Bob in Florida. Bob. Jimmy Cho, this is Bob from Southwest Florida, coming from Craig and Cove. How are you doing? Bob, I'm hanging in. How about you? Good, good. Hey, I'm a club member. I just want to thank you and Jeff for all you do. Your knowledge goes beyond. How, good, how about how great Jeff is? Jeff has got to do something Jeff else is, other than Jeff, work. Jeff is the best. But hey, Quick booyah and bing bong. But a quick question: uh, What about Lowe's? What do you think of Lowe's here with interest rates? Uh, well, dropping? I got to tell you. I mean, let me tell you what I feel about Lowe's. I think you got to take a long-term view about how Marvin Ellison's turning the stock around. I say long-term view because it hit its 52-week high today, and I've been liking the stock. But I'm loath to recommend a stock that added 52-week high on a daily today when I know the companies could be vulnerable for a quick downturn if interest rates go up a little bit more. So I think you'd wait for a pullback, and then you can buy some. But I think what Marvin Ellison's doing at Lowe's is real, it's permanent, and it's great. Let's go to Fernando in New York. Fernando. Boy, Jim. How you doing? I am doing fine, Fernando. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. I got a stock here, Walmart. It's the world's largest retailer. It posted $611 billion in revenues last year. And with Piper Sandler upgrading Walmart from a neutral to an overweight, do you think it's a buy, even though it's close to its 52-week high? Well, see, that's the problem. We had a reversal today, so why don't we let it come in a little more? I will tell you this. Sam's Club is doing incredibly well, which is why I think Walmart's doing incredibly well. So maybe you buy some tomorrow, but then give it some room. I like to do, like, I'll say a 5% scale. In the club, people know. I buy a little tomorrow and then let it come down and buy a little more. Because we are a little overbought, but I think that Walmart is a very good stock, and that is being driven by Sam's. Randy in Pennsylvania, Randy. Yeah, booyah. The third time's a charm. You are the best. Thank Fly, you. Fly. We're going back to the Super Bowl, and we're going to win. Oh, we're yeah. Howie Roseman's got us playing at another level. Yeah. We're going to win. We're going to win. I'm going to go with you. We have fun from the Horsham Center. Sports Talk, we invite you to come. We're Investor Club. We just had Scott Palmer. We want you. You're going to come, Jim. Thank you wait. very much. Thank you. Now, I sent you a gift. I hope you got the T-shirt. You have to wear the Freedom Fighters. You know what I'm yes. talking about. Yes, thank you. Now, I want you to talk about 
Berkshire Hathaway Class B. I want your view on mid. I want you to buy it. I want you to buy it. I just think that that pastiche of earnings is terrific. I think that there's a really good natural gas story brewing. There's a, I mean, the pipes, uh, pipes are really in short supply. He's got a lot. The rails are turning around. I do think that the American Express position has gotten too depressed. There's so much that's good there that I always say, you buy Berkshire B. All right, now there used to be a genuine feeling of joy towards owning stocks, one that hasn't been felt across this market for, well, I'd say since the turn of the century. But we may be in the cusp of it again. I know it's not something you want to celebrate on a down day like today, but it does feel pretty different around here. I'm in money tonight. Going up, I'll see if that's what's happening with the stock of elevator maker Otis and if it's primed to do it with the company's top brass. Then we've got results from the four of Magnificent Seven, but which of these red hot tech stocks do I think deserves the award for best so far this earnings season? I'm digging into details. And Agco reported a big top and bottom might be for the second quarter. So why did the shares sell off in response to earnings? Well, we got to get to the bottom of that. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. After Jay Powell told us yesterday that the Fed no longer expects a recession, and then today we got a much stronger than expected GDP number, 
It's worth looking over some of the great companies people have missed out on because Wall Street's so worried about a horrific slowdown. Take Otis Worldwide, the elevator and escalator maker that also does installation and servicing. The bulk of the revenue actually comes from the service business. After being range-bound earlier this year, thanks to all the recession fears, the stock's finally been able to get some traction in recent months. It's up more than 12% since the end of May. Yesterday, Otis reported a truly excellent set of numbers, a clean top-and-line beat with 9.5% organic growth, while the analysts were looking for 5%. Even better, management raised their full-year forecast and even said they planned to step up their buyback, which allowed the stock to rally 3.6% yesterday. I'll get back some of the gains today. So could it have more room to run or should be worried about some of these order pictures which make me really think I don't want to get too bullish? Let's check in with Judy Marks. She's the chair and CEO of Otis Worldwide. You get a better read in the quarter and where the company's in. Ms. Marks, welcome back to Mad Money. Great to see you, Jim. Great to be back. Okay, so Judy, I have to admit there's part of me that just says this was an amazing quarter. Your sales are great. And it's so clear that around the globe, your maintenance business is terrific. But you started out by sharing a 2023 updated outlook that seemed to think that, well, Europe, the Americas really showed some weakness. So I'm getting a little concerned. Maybe the future won't be as bright as the past. Jim, listen, we look for the future. We turn to our backlog and we just had an incredible quarter. As you said, uh, the top line was up nine and a half percent, not just in new equipment, but almost that much, 9.4 percent in our service business, our best organic service growth since we spun in April of 2020. So the new equipment business is good. The service business is good. It's dropping through with margin expansion and letting us really increase our EPS. We were up 7%. But when we look at the markets, what we tell all of our investors is, look at our backlog. We have record backlogs for the company. So we're going into right now, our backlog was up 5% this quarter in new equipment, up 14% in modernization. That gives us a good 18, 24 months of work ahead that we know we need to execute for our customers. And we're going to do that all over the world. Okay, so, Judy, can you give me the service numbers, because, uh, including the modernization numbers? Because they're extraordinary. And I think that people have to recognize that the service business is a true annuity stream. Yeah, so we have a maintenance and repair business, which is a wonderful annuity screen, annuity stream. Uh, our maintenance and repair business was up over 9% with repairs up in the teens. Uh, again, we thought that would come down a couple years post-COVID. Everyone's back, you know, and, and elevators and usage. It's still expanding. But the modernization business, think of that as refurbishment, upgrades, technology upgrades, Fourth consecutive quarter, Jim, we were up over 10% in orders at 16% this quarter, and it's only going to grow as elevators are aging throughout the globe. Can you speak to me about what the depiction, the current depiction of China? Because you say in China, another 280 elevators and escalators from Otis will keep people moving in just one area, in a metro, a new line seven. But then you know, next, next page, you start talking about how maybe China is going to be down 10% versus the prior guide of down 5 to 10%. So again, that's what I'm trying to get at. I don't want to be in a situation where I'm so sanguine when you're telling me also be careful ahead of time. Yeah. So the China market, you know, we came into April and saw really good results. In May, they got a little weaker. We ended the quarter with with the market itself coming down. We were expecting the second half to have, you know, an uplift, if, if I may, or an uptick. Right. right. And, uh, and we were going to see more book and ship type business. Right now, we've altered our outlook to really take the market down to minus 10. 
it was minus 10 in the quarter. We finished at minus five, Jim, which means we grew share. But it is going to be down unless there's some sort of stimulus or policy, even, uh, policy easing or even just sentiments going to improve. You know, we were encouraged by the Politburo statement on Monday. We're watching the policies ease, but we've got to see that come through. So we took our, our outlook down, but our outlook in Asia Pacific countered it because of significant growth in India, which is why we raised top line and bottom line how we're going to finish the year. Well, I'm glad you brought up India. That's where I wanted to go because a lot of countries, a lot of people still think that China is the great growth company, a country in the world. Actually, it's India. India's younger people. India does not have the aging population. What is with India that makes it so difficult to do business there? Or are you cracking the code? Listen, we've been in India for decades. We have branches throughout the throughout the country. We manufacture at our factory in Bengaluru in India for India. We have a shared service center in India. We have actually our first installation in India was well over 100 years ago. So it's a great market for us. It's run and led by our by our Indian uh, colleagues, and it's growing significantly. It's the second largest market in the world in the elevator wow. and escalator industry. Infrastructure's expanding. Residential's expanding. Multifamily. There is a demand in the middle class for mobility and for good housing, and, and it's really showing in the numbers. Well, Judy, will we be talking about India the way we used to talk about China? I mean, it, it was kind of the be-all and end-all. As long as China was doing, doing well, we were good. I mean, should I be starting by questioning with India from now on? Well, I'd love if you'd start your question from India, but we believe China will always be a strong market. It's moving more to be a service market, Jim. Right. There's 8 million units in China that need to be serviced, and you and I both know it's all about safety and service. It's the majority of our revenue. It's also mandated. And in China and the rest of the world, that's going to continue because we need to move people safely. No matter how old an elevator is, people should feel safe using it. Terrific. Judy, thank you so much for delivering that terrific series of numbers. Once again, just we're getting used to it. Uh, it's been a great run for you and Otis. Thank you to Judy Marks, chair and CEO of Otis Worldwide. Really good to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Jim. Absolutely. Mad Money, back after the break. Coming up, hail fellow, well meta? Kramer looks back on the most recent quarter at the house that Zuck built. Next. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. For most of the year, this market has been led by the Magnificent Seven. Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Meta Platforms, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Tesla. 
While the rally's broadened out over the last couple of months, these seven stocks are still huge winners. They're up anywhere from 40% to 214% for the year. But now we've entered earnings season, and it's time for these companies to justify these monster moves in their stocks. Just like the movie, not all of them survive. So far, we've heard from Tesla, Microsoft, Alphabet, and Meta platforms, and they've been what I call a mixed bag, with Meta standing head and shoulders above the rest. Tesla kicked things off last Wednesday, and while the numbers, the headline numbers were good, there were plenty of hair on the quarter. Tesla's earnings beat was fueled by non-operating items like gains for foreign exchange hedges. Management said their third quarter production would be down a little bit, even as they reaffirmed their full-year forecast. Just got to trust that they make up that production in the fourth quarter. Their free cash flow came in much weaker than expected for the third straight quarter. And Wall Street didn't love it when Elon Musk talked about spending well over $1 billion on supercomputers to fuel his autonomous driving ambitions. I believe in Musk, but Wall Street's gotten skeptical, which is why the stock tumbled 10% last Thursday. The way I see it, this is a buying opportunity, even as the quarter wasn't exactly a thing of beauty. Next up, this Tuesday, we heard from Alphabet and Microsoft after the close. Well, I think they had a lot of similarities. The market loved Alphabet and loathed Microsoft. Both companies delivered nice top and bottom line beats, though. Both companies delivered solid results for their cloud infrastructure vision. Microsoft's Azure was up 26%, and the much smaller Google Cloud up 28%. Both talked about their AI capabilities. I liked it, uh, while also warning that bulking up in the AI business will be very expensive. But in the end, Alphabet stock roared nearly 6% yesterday, while Microsoft stock sold off nearly 4%, and it's still going lower. Why? Okay, the biggest positive surprise for Alphabet was actually from their advertising business. After being down and out for the past year, Google Search finally saw accelerating growth. And what I have to tell you, management also called the stabilization of the YouTube ad business. That was a shocker to me. Alphabet's more or less an advertising play, so if that batter business has bottomed, it makes a huge difference. I've got to tell you, I signed up today for the NFL, the football package on, on Google and I, on YouTube. And I find myself saying, well, I think a lot, a lot of people play fantasy. I think it's going to be a home run for them. Now, Microsoft's a software company. They didn't get a big boost from advertising. At the same time, Wall Street doesn't seem to like their AI talk. The bears think Microsoft's too vague about the potential benefits of AI while being very specific about the high cost of getting there. Now, look. Microsoft recently announced pricing for the company's new co-pilot AI assistant for Microsoft 365 products, but they wouldn't commit to a launch date for co-pilot, with CFO Amy Hood saying only that we probably wouldn't see the benefits from this business until the second half of the company's 2024 fiscal year. That's the first half of the 2024 calendar year. At the same time, Microsoft made it clear that their margins would likely be flat in 2024, thanks to all the AI spending. And that's what crushed the stock. I think they were way, way too negative. Of course, as I told members of the CBC Investing Club, I think the pullback in Microsoft represents a true buying opportunity. While you might want to sell part of your position outfit into the stock's recent strength, and for me, some concerns about antitrust. For my money, the best quarter we got from the Magnificent 7 so far was from Meta Platforms, which delivered a blowout set of numbers last night. If the market hadn't turned down, then you would have seen the stock up huge. Like Alphabet, this is an ad-based business, which is how Meta could have an 11% revenue growth this quarter, up from 2.6% in the first quarter. What an acceleration that is. First time they've had double-digit revenue growth since 2021. Even better, Meta's guiding for 15.5% to 24.5% revenue growth in the current quarter, and that is huge. 
The business benefited from the improved ad market like Alphabet, along with many more company-specific catalysts, higher engagement, more time spent on Meta's family of applications, and the use of artificial intelligence, which led to a 34% increase in the total number of ad impressions in the quarter. All these companies love to talk about AI, but I'd argue that Meta is the one that's seeing the biggest tangible benefit from this technology. And I knew he was working closely with Jensen Wong on this stuff, and I told you that, because they're using artificial intelligence to overcome Apple's privacy restrictions. That allows them to provide better targeted ads on Facebook and Instagram. This time they also explain how AI-recommended posts from accounts that you don't follow has become the fastest-growing category of content uh, for Facebook's feed, hence the big increase in user engagement. And that's what I think NVIDIA is really helping them on. We're seeing something similar at Reels, Meta's TikTok killer, which now has an annual revenue rate of $10 billion. That's up from around $3 billion just last fall. That is a much faster adoption than anyone was looking for. And I'm a huge Reels fan, and I didn't think they could do that. But what makes this quarter so remarkable is Meta's seeing tremendous revenue growth at the same time that CEO Mark Chainsaw Zuckerberg continues to put through draconian cost cuts. And that includes laying off roughly a quarter of the workforce. That's how Meta could put up a $0.07 earnings beat off a $2.91 basis. And that number would have been even higher if it were not for a one-time $780 million Charge. The free cash flow came in at nearly $11 billion. Wall Street was only looking for $6.05 billion. Now, of course, Meta is still doing lots of investing. They're putting a ton of money into this metaverse, which continues to just hemorrhage cash. But while investors might not love that, it's a lot easier to look past those expensive investments when the core business is printing money again. Most important, Meta gave you a terrific forecast. They're talking about roughly 20% revenue growth at the midpoint of their guidance. They cut their full-year capital expenditure guidance by $3 billion, although that's mostly due to a a push out of some investments until next year. Now, a lot of people gave up on this stock when it was getting obliterated last year, but those who stuck with it, like we did for my travel trust, continue to be rewarded. Shares up 4.4% today, even as the major averages sputtered. And I got to tell you, this stock again was up much more at one point. Meta's now rallied 159% year-to-date, and it's up 254% from its lows set last November. There's still a long way to go until the stock's bumping up again. It's $384 all-time high from September 2021. But with a couple more quarters like this one that we got last night, it might get there sooner rather than later. Let me give you the bottom line here. At the halfway point of the Magnificent 7 earnings calendar, we've got a bit of a mixed bag. Although I like Tesla and Microsoft, Wall Street certainly didn't like those quarters. While Alphabet and Meta gave you clear wins. That said, so far, Meta's delivered the best quarter by far in this group. And I bet the stock still has a lot more, up, it's more upside, given it's still incredibly low valuation versus its growth rate. And a realization that someday, someday soon maybe, the Metaverse won't continue to burn through cash as it has been and is supposed to do in the near future. Let's go to Chris in D.C. Chris. Jim, how's it going? Well, Chris, I don't know. I didn't like the reversal late in the day. It's got me a little concerned. But let's see what happens tomorrow. How about you? I'm going, doing great. So right. I have a uh, 401k that I'm converting over to a Roth IRA. Right. And I'm looking at a particular stock that's almost tripled over the last five years. I'm curious what you think about Palo Alto Networks. I think you're fine. There was a downgrade today about Palo Alto from, uh, I believe, Opco, saying it's moved up too far too fast. Well, you know what? That's the kind of thing that says to me, all right, let it come in and buy a little more. So what I'm going to tell you to do is let it come in and buy a little more. Let's go to Jaden, Arizona. Jaden. Hey, Kramer. How's it going? Not bad, Jaden. How about you? I'm doing terrific. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. I got a quick question here for you. Um, 
I'm looking at apps, digital turbine, and I've had this position for a while. I'm either looking at it right now as either buy an opportunity or I could wait a little bit while to have it go down a lower to maybe buy more. What are your thoughts? Okay. Um, I'm going to come out against that one uh, that, because I just think that there is, I mean, it's, look, it's low value, but I don't think it has enough growth and it's down 32% for the year. In a year that's very good, that's very disconcerting to me. Let's hold off on that. I don't think it might be the right thing for you. All right, now we've had a mixed bag so far from the members of the Magnificent Seven that have reported earnings, with Meta being the standout from the group up to this point. Much more made money, including my suits with, with Agco. Trying to wrap your head around the farm and ag business standing across the globe? Well, there's no better place to go than Agco. I'm seeing some headwinds that are shaking out in the farming sector with the company's top brass. Then there's sight, and then there's hindsight. One will help you make money, and the other could derail your investing strategy. I'm sharing why this lesson is even more important during earnings season than ever. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. of this quarter from Agco, one of the world's largest makers of farm equipment. Here's a company that delivered an excellent quarter, big top and bottom line beat, impressive growth in every region, and management raised their full year forecast pretty substantially. What's not to like, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, the stock did sell off 3% today. After digging through the quarter, I can't see an obvious explanation, except for the fact that maybe South American sales fell a little short of expectations. It doesn't strike me as a huge deal, given that every other region beat the estimates handily. At the same time, Agco's guidance seems to imply that they'll get hit with some margin contraction. Maybe that's a problem? Uh, I don't know. They still have some supply chain bottlenecks. This is tough to figure. Really, I think Wall Street's worried that this will be Agco's last good quarter as the agricultural cycle finally starts to cool off. Is that right, or could that just be a mistake? Let's take a closer look with Eric Ansodia. He is the chairman and CEO of Agco. To learn more about the quarter, what comes next? Mr. Ansodia, welcome back to Bad Money. Great to be here, Jim, and especially on the best quarter in the history of our company. Well, that's what I want to talk about, Eric, because I think there are people when they see a quarter like this, they say, well, it can't get better than that. And yet I think you're setting yourself up for a multi-year move and that people just want to try to call a top in, in an industry that frankly has to resist a top because we are a growth world that needs more food. Exactly. In terms of demand, the world still doesn't have enough grain. You know, and with Russia cutting off the supply in Ukraine, all the indicators show that that, that's going to drive grain prices up another 10 to 15 percent. It's just put more pressure on our farmers for productivity. They're going to get even more hungry for the technology-rich, productivity-enhancing equipment that we sell to them. Well, I'm glad you said that because there was a moment in the conference call where you just basically said, look, Ukraine is a very tough thing to figure out, but it does help profitability for the farmers. And I know we never want to be in a situation where we're trying to profit off of a war, but there is no doubt that this is good news for someone selling farm equipment. Exactly. When you take supply out of the system, the supply of grain comes out of the system and the demand doesn't change, price goes up to equalize that. And as price goes up, that's a good thing for our farmers. They get more income into their system. And so that's what we're seeing today. And we're not only seeing it from that situation, but you see it from all of the climate events around the world. We've got such excessive heat in North America and in Europe. Some of the key growing regions for crops around the world are really suffering from uh, all-time record highs. 
that's not good for crop growth. And so there's a number of factors that create tailwinds for continued uh, good profitability for our farmers. Well, I've seen your equipment and you've got giant combines, but you also have some smaller ones. But I associate you with the big guys. You did say that smaller tractors are just not doing as well as the big ones right now. Is that because of some of the things you're talking about? Well, there's two, two businesses. One is small ag, one's large ag. On the small ag, we had a very strong business during COVID and probably even a little bit of pull ahead. Folks like you and I were looking out our window and we're saying, you know, I'd always, I've always wanted to take care of that project. I'm going to go sure. buy a tractor now and, and take care of it. So there's a little bit of extra demand during that time. Now interest rates have gone up and that small egg segment is a little more susceptible to interest rates. So it's cooled off a little bit, but we knew that was coming. That was very predictable. The large egg, which is to in the majority of our business, it is going strong. Demand is strong. There's a lot of tailwinds to that. We keep bringing technology to the marketplace, so it keeps bringing new reasons for farmers that they say, I got to have that machine. It's a great ROI for my business. Now, I do want to point out, because I get very excited about smart ag, because it makes so much sense, particularly in a world where there's not enough people at work, but it is still not a huge part of your business. What makes you so confident that it can become a growing part of your business that we actually be talking about, say, be 25, 30 percent instead of what it is now? Well, it depends what we call uh, smart machines. Okay. Our whole Fent business is the premium brand that we go to the market for our agco customers, for our, our agro machinery customers. Now, we also have this retrofit business where we sell technology modules onto our machines and every other brand of equipment. So we have those both running in parallel. Both of them are growth engines. Both of them are high margin. Both add a lot of value. And when you combine the two of them, it's a majority of our sales already. Okay, that's a better way to look at it than that 5% five to 6% number that you could if you're really too stringent about pure uh, ag. Now, do I have to worry about second half margins? There were some comments about it. And I'm bringing these up only because I'm trying to explain to people, a stock went, your stock went down. Maybe it shouldn't have, but these were the things that people mentioned. So I want to I suss them out. Second half margins, real problem? Well, we, we beat and raised last quarter. We beat and raised this quarter. I know you and your, your, uh, your, your viewers like that. That's what we like. And so, you know, we've got a plan going forward. We're executing to that plan. There's a, two factors I would point to. One was last year we had an enormous amount of supply chain issues, just like everybody else in the industrial market. And so when we got to the end of the year, we put a big push on getting that product out to our customers for their tax end planning. Well, that created a big slug of product that went through. This year, supply chain is much better. And so we, by design, made sure that we are building to demand and giving customers a much more predictable outcome. We don't want that slug at the end of the year. So we've got a little bit of a compare issue in December because of that issue. Um, and the, the, the second factor is that we're continuing to invest in engineering. All of these machines, we've, we've raised engineering 20% every year since I've been running the company. It's all focused on artificial intelligence and smart machines, um, onboard compute. We want to keep doing that. Well, as we, according to our plan, we're just going to continue to invest in engineering. There's more engineering spend in the back half than there is in the front half. It's all, it's all according to plan. We're delivering on our plan, and it's continuing to add more value for farmers, grow our margins, and grow our top line. All right, one last question. I, I was listening to what you say. I've been doing a lot of work with the insurers, and they're all convinced, listen, there really is the heat wave is not a heat wave. It's global warming, and we've got to start adjusting everything. When I listen to what you just said about the heat, I'm beginning to think, you know what, this is not just your normal weather. What does it mean ultimately for the ag business if we really do have definitive global warming that changes the way that we view our world? 
Well, it's going to put more challenge on the farmer because there's going to be more weather volatility. In some areas, you're going to have very severe drought. And in, the, and in the nearby area, you may have a very severe flood. Both are bad for crop production. So it's just going to put more and more pressure on the farmer to be more productive with whatever land that they have. So the, the use of technology to make the machines more intelligent, to be able to understand variations in the soil or the crop, and be able to make decisions for themselves on behalf of the farmer to optimize yield and minimize the amount of inputs that they're using because the inputs are expensive is exactly where this market's going. That's why we're investing so much in it. We see that this is an accelerating trend, uh, not only supply and demand, but the, the pressures from the, the climate are going to continue to make this a bigger wow, deal. That makes so much sense. Well, you've cleared up everything that I have because I've been a backer since the 30s. For You know that for your stock. So I don't want to see if there's chinks. I don't want to avoid them. I want to challenge them head on. That's Eric Hansodi. He's the president and chairman, CEO of Agco. Eric, thank you for coming back on the show. Great to see you, Jim. Yeah, man, I'm be back after the break. Coming up, Kramer wants to hear from you. Your calls on the thunderous lightning round. Next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. Kramer, everybody's about Robert Colson. Another same as Bob. Bob, you'll be playing the sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Tough. The lightning round, Kramer. Let's start with Mitchell in Texas. Mitchell. Kramer, I need some help on this one, man. Sure, absolutely. Let me go. Let me go to work for you. Hey, I'm going to Topgolf tonight, and I'm going to spend a bomb, so I need to make some back in the stock. How do you think I'm going to do? Stock's been disappointing, and I think it's rather strange because the business itself is very good. I think you should buy the stock. How about we go to David in Michigan? David. Hey, Mr. Kramer. I'm a uh, first-time caller. My, my boy Drew put me up on you a few years ago, and I've been watching and listening ever since. I like that. So, yeah. So, uh, listen, so the company I'd like to know if I should hold is uh, IDEX Laboratories, IDX. Okay, I like IDEX, but Soetis is crushing them. I think Soetis is the way to go when it comes to animal health. Let's go to Trent in Florida. Trent. Hello, Jim. Second-time caller from Clearwater, Florida, home in the Philly Spring Training. Exactly. We look good. We can play. We can play. What's up? Yes, we can. My stock could be considered an AI stock. It's Teladoc, D-T-D-O-C. All right, they had a very good quarter today. I think a lot of people are going to upgrade the stock now that they finally showed some upside momentum. I think you're okay for a trade, but not for long. John in Washington. John. Yes. Hey, good talking to you, Jim. Hey, I have a question for you. Tell me what your thoughts are on Lucid. I don't like Lucid. I like Rivian. I think Rivian's real. I know there's a big short position, but I think Rivian's delivering exactly what you want. And I think they've got a bra- they got a team there that I think is a little bit better than people realize. Let's go to Peggy in Georgia. Peggy. Yes. Thank you, Jim, for taking the course, call. Please. I'm calling about Johnson Control. Uh, when I was a teenager, uh, it was in our paper every week, and it was never below $97, and now it's. 68, so well, you, you know what? You are right. Johnson Controls is a part of a group of stocks, including Carrier, including Train, including Eaton, including Parker Hannafin. These are great American companies, industrial companies that are making a comeback. I would love to do a show about the comeback industrials of which JCI would certainly be in it. Let's go to Brandon in my home state, New Jersey. Brandon! Hello, Jim. I'm calling again. I have a different question this time. Okay. I want to know what your thoughts on uh, JD.com are. 
Well, look, I, I have to buy that. You know, this is so tough for me because Alibaba's really the only one I think has really got the, the, the momentum in China, and they're also dividing it into you can get their cloud business, which is really terrific, and that's the only one. And that, ladies and gentlemen, in conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, Chipotle has piled on the profits. Are investors too quick to see red when the burritos come loose? Kramer's movable feast continues next. Just when you thought it was safe to wade back in, is there danger lurking in the market's murky waters? Kramer's talking to top technicians and going over the great white charts to help you be the bigger fish in this tape. Don't miss Chart Week, all next week on Mad Money. want foresight, not hindsight. Yet nobody ever wants to hear that they'll look back on this moment and kick themselves for missing out on a terrific buying opportunity. Take today. The stock of Chipotle got clobbered like a baby seal, down nearly 10% because it, it ever so slightly failed to impress on a couple of line items when it reported last night. In hindsight, I think people will look back and curse themselves for missing this buying opportunity. They probably won't even remember why the stock sold off. As someone who's run restaurants, I can tell you that the most important considerations are traffic and throughput. For the past couple of years, most restaurants have been trying to walk a tightrope, raising price enough to pass on higher costs, but not so much that it drives customers away. Chipotle's different, though. They could raise prices to more than offset their higher costs, and it didn't hurt traffic one bit. That's how much people love the food. There, That's a very rare set of, of... It's almost impossible to do what they're doing. But even if you have great food like Chipotle, you need to be able to speed up throughput to meet all that demand. Throughput's the single biggest determinant of success here, and Chipotle struggled mightily to maintain it. People will go elsewhere if they think that line's too long. You can't keep anyone waiting, especially when your traffic's as high as I just mentioned. That's why when I read through the Chipotle conference call, I'm less concerned with same-store sales or revenues per unit right now, and more focused on that new dual grill. They can cook chicken in four minutes rather than 12 minutes. With steak, it's even faster, one minute instead of four minutes. Right now, this high-tech grill is only in 10 high-volume locations, and it's working. That's going to dramatically speed up throughput as they roll it out worldwide. That kind of throughput will bring up a store's annual sales rather dramatically. That's what's important here. I know there are many people who see Chipotle stock down this much, and they assume the stock's peak. I, I, I get it, but I disagree. I've liked this $1,883 stock since it was at $300. And I'm not backing away now. That traffic's higher. Come on. Prices aren't up that much. Throughput will soon be much better. What's not to like? Sometimes you just have to trust the process. Here's another one. Honeywell. Today, it reported the company beat estimates, had higher segment margins, revenue was on target, backlog was up, and the aerospace franchise is the best in the industry. Only one line about warehouse automation was actually weak. That was Telegraph. Yet the stock plunged more than 5% today. I think that's a severe overreaction. We own Honeywell for the Travel Trust, and we have a strict ranking system to help guide you. When the stock bored to the 208, 209 level from one of the 190s, we downgraded Honeywell from what we call a one to a two. One means buy now, two means buy in a weakness. I feared the next quarter would be seen as a dud given how much the stock had run, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. We took Honeywell back to a one today because there was absolutely nothing wrong with the quarter. Time to build back the position. Let me 
give you one of the last ones to keep things in perspective. A year ago, Align Technology, the company behind the revolutionary Invisalign tease traders, it hit a speed bump. They blamed weakness in China, problems in Ukraine, inflation. The stock got clobbered, just clobbered, falling from the north of, north of the 300 down to the 170s in just three months. Joe Hogan, straight shooting CEO, told you not to worry. Hardly anybody took him seriously. As they, those excuses really didn't seem to hold up under close scrutiny. The bears didn't seem to care that if you owned a line since June of 2011, you'd have a better than 1,500% gain, just a fabulous long-term tracker. They wouldn't give a Kogan the, the benefit of the doubt. Then last night, a line reported an amazing number. Today, the stock rallied $45 to 385 more than double where it was when Hogan gave you that litany of excuses that the market didn't want to believe in. Some companies and the people who run them are simply bankable. And that's true for Chipotle. It is true for Honeywell, just as it was true for a line when the stock rolled over last year. Hindsight says you should have bought a line into weakness. Foresight says go buy Honeywell and Chipotle right now because they're in the same situation. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you next time. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.